minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, rootworker, and witch, You can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. You can find Ginger at TarotByGinger.com, and she is a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And again, you can find her at TarotByGinger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Raymond Hunter, and he has a book called Planet Survivors. Thanks for coming on. I'm glad to be here. So, um, what uh, is the premise of the book? Well, let me uh, summarize what the book's about. It's about, uh, it's an engaging adult sci-fi novel. And by adult, I mean there is some Material that's not suitable for children. Mm-hmm. But I, I try to keep that subtle. It's it's a it's about real flawed people. No Wookies, no Ewoks, no Jabba the Huts, just ordinary people. And well one one telepath. The plot follows the adventures of an alien Stella in planet Mun, a futuristic paradise where everyone is genetically engineered to perfection. Mm-hmm. Stella is of course exquisitely beautiful and intelligent, but also an odd duck. She doesn't fit in. The cell of Mundians are a bunch of lazy, pampered rats. She believes all this paradise stuff is a seductive death trap, and she works hard to save Mun from its folly. Hmm. Abandon its quest for perfection and to restore their old, fun-loving ways. Stella chances on some 1980s Earth sitcom broadcasts, and the creativity blows her away. Seems to her that humans can make joy out of nothing. She travels to Earth to learn how they do it and to recruit the best of them as volunteers to go back and to Mun and teach what they know. And then she meets a swashbuckling student, charismatic leader called John the Great One, a medical student dedicated to saving Earth from the evils of capitalism. Interspecies romance takes wing. Hmm. Their affair with two plans to save. Their affair plus the two plans leaves a lot to be resolved. Mm-hmm. In, addition, in addition to the satirical subplot about a flip report on developing worlds, which gave us a poor rating, the ending may be a surprise, although hints were dropped throughout it. So that's a synopsis. Interesting. So, so this alien comes from a planet where it's like paradise is perfect. Well, when you look at the age, when the end of the UFO speculation from the news, mm-hmm. you become aware that the. The universe is like 13 billion years old. Yeah. And uh, um, well, intelligent life has been here for a couple hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So it's every, I think it's uh, quite reasonable to expect that there are places in the universe that have intelligent life that is far more advanced than we are. Um, it had maybe a million years almost. It'd be nothing. It's a rounding error. Yeah. So this is one of those places that's way, way far advanced. It's like on the UFO reports when I talk about they're doing maneuvers that we can't do. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're here at all, they doesn't travel light like it's showing that they have much more technology than we have. Right. Absolutely. So Go ahead. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know, think that, that if, um, I, I mean, one, yeah, I definitely agree. There, there's life out there. That life is visiting our planet. Um, I mean, at, at the very least, they're certainly observing us. Um, you know, uh, well, that, try, it's interesting. Without stating it explicitly, we um, in the book we kind of tackle two questions of interest there. One is why do they come here at all? If they're that advanced, what are they going to get from us? What can we teach them? That's one question we try to address in the book. Good question. Very good question. And uh, the other question is what would they think of us? Would they admire us? 
where they pat us on the back and say we did a great job in such a short time. They think we were deficient compared to other civilizations throughout the universe. And we take a crack at that too. That's all tied up in the FUP report. Hmm. I think that they would probably want to contain us and keep us from spreading like a bad virus. <laughs> well, that's kind of um, the, the one thing they're concerned about is the big bomb. If you discover the principle of the big bomb, you can take down half a galaxy, much bigger than the hydrogen bomb. Hmm. And they don't want a primitive culture to stumble on that and start playing with it. So that's part of the reason for the FUP report. They, they visit the primitive planets on a regular basis. I just check on their status so they're not getting themselves in trouble. And they give us low marks. <laughs> you can read it to see why we get low marks. I don't think I have to read it. I live it every day. <laughs> 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 but but I, I, you know, that's always been sort of my theory, too, is that um, if we, um, that, that there's something that we could do that would probably affect or destroy, you know, other life forms, in our, at least at the very least, in our galaxy or other dimensions. <laughs> so they have to like kind of, you know, not even like it's not like they want to necessarily help us out of an altruistic type of um, reason. It's for their own survival. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and I guess they're uh, we're not at the point yet where they're like, okay, we have to kill these people, or they're going to kill us. No, we're not. Hmm. So what what got you into this sci-fi type of topic to begin with? What made you want to address these two questions? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, I, I'm, uh, my background is in engineering and mathematics. I have a PhD in mathematics. And mm-hmm. I thought I was, a research, I was a researcher for a number of years. So that didn't get me into it. What did get me into it, I think, is I was way back in the 1970s. I was reading Goethe's Faust for the first time. And I, I liked the book. Now, I can't tell you, I couldn't summarize it anymore. It's been too long. But we, we, computers were new. Home computers were new. This is like 1973 or something. And we had just gotten an Apple II Plus. <laughs> and it had Apple Pie editor. And I wanted to play with it and learn how to use this thing. Because we were starting to use it at work. So I sat down and I wrote a little story. And I said, how would Faust look if you translated it to modern times? That was my question to myself. I, I didn't make a big deal of it. I just wrote up a couple pages. But over the years, um, that kind of worked its way into being a story. And uh, I would, when I was bored, I would go in, you know, edit it, and maybe add a, add a couple paragraphs or a page or two. And from 1973 to today, <laughs> It happened over that span. Now, for, for a long time, we didn't have Jeff Bezos and Katie Kubrat publishing. So I didn't even try to publish it. Hmm. Um, but then when Bezos came along, made things possible that were impossible before. So I gave it a whirl. Wow. So this book was like almost, what, 60 years in the making? <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing. Well, it's just on the back burner, you know. So something I several... Several ideas on the back there. Uh-huh. Wow, that's the longest I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, wow. So, so you, um, as a mathematician, then, like, um, obviously, like, from a statistics point of view, you, ha- you have to believe that intelligent life exists in the universe. But also from that point of view, from looking at the distance of planets and stuff like that, mm-hmm. how do you think they're getting here? Do you think that they're traveling in machines? Do you think they're using consciousness? How, how do you think they're doing it? What makes sense to you from that perspective as a mass, mathematician? Well, when you think um, entanglement, um, that's where we have particles that are born of the same event, like mm-hmm. a decay or something. And so two particles, identical particles, fly off in opposite directions. And in the future, you can do experiments with these particles. And it's been proven, beyond a shadow of a doubt, by John Bell and successors, mm-hmm. that things that you do to the particles at one end of the universe affect the things at the other end of the universe at faster than the speed of light. 
And something has happened in the past that must be like, we don't really know what that is. It's some sort of communication that's happened. Hmm. Um, so if you can tap into that and understand that better, that we may have a way of traveling faster than the speed of light. I think that's what's going on. Be my best guess. So that's like the... But entang entanglement is really not, um, that's really not settled. We don't understand how that, how that happens. Right. We don't understand the mechanism. So that's kind of like the Einstein Bohm Bridge. Yeah. Okay. That is exactly right. It's a the tunnel. Mm hmm I think that's one possibility. Mm -hmm. I I also think too that <clears throat> um maybe light is not the fastest traveling thing in the universe. Maybe consciousness is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think of that type of idea? Well, what is consciousness? <laughs> Nobody knows. That, that's the mystery of it, right? We don't know what it is. Yeah. You, know? you know? I mean, sometimes, like, even simple things like, like gravity, I think like we know how to measure it, but I don't know if we really know what it is. We know how to Well, you know, when you, read the, when you read the very best scientist views on this, um, they don't... Einstein, when he was here dying, they would say that every Tom, Dick, and Harry... Since they know what light is, but he didn't feel like he knew. Mm -hmm. That tells you something. If he doesn't think he knows what light is, how, how would I know? Right. Well, we don't know. We, we, we take it just for granted, like, from our, our perception, like what we're perceiving and the things that we are able to measure, which I suppose is really limited. There's even an interesting on, on YouTube, there's a thing called, uh, um, I forget the name of the show, but he has a presentation on the speed of light, mm. and he says it's never been measured, and he makes his case, and it's, it's actually a pretty good case, because if you look at the experiment, it's always the round trip time that gets measured, it's never the one-way trip time, and you have to think about, think about that a little bit, I think he's right, mm. you measure round trips, so you don't really know whether it went at the same speed out as it came back, Right. you just look, the round trip time comes out to be constant. Hmm. I don't know yeah. if you've seen that. Um, Veritas, what it's called. Have Have you so, ever had an encounter with a UFO yourself, personally? No, I wish I would. I'd like to see what my own eyes what they're talking about. Hmm. But I know that I know I find it highly convincing that the people who have seen them are either better liars than I've ever seen, or they're telling the truth. The average person can't lie that well. Right. You can tell when they're lying. Most of us even without training can tell. With training, you can tell even more. But uh, when, when, when a number of pilots in Florida claim to have seen the same things, and they're told that they, they're looking at weather balloons and they're confused. These are professional pilots. Uh, they know their job. They, they know what they're looking at. And I think it's almost insulting to tell them they're looking at a balloon and they don't know it. Right. Right. So either they're all lying and they're very skillful liars or there's some truth in it, right? Um, I, I think there's truth in it. There's too many there's too many reports. Do you think the government knows what they are and is hiding it from the public? Um I think that would be true for a while. I d I don't know. Certainly has been true for to, to a point I don't know if they've gotten over that or not. I I've seen something about Suggesting that they um, they know more than they're saying, but I don't know. Really hmm. Interesting. And, uh, um. So, how do you think that you would interact with us? How do you think that an extraterrestrial would interact with humans to stop us? Try to stop us from screwing up the fabric of the universe. Hmm. Well. I, I doubt that they do very much by force anymore, if they're that advanced. I mean, force is a pretty cool tool. tool. Pretty cool tool. I, I think right. it would be persuasion. They'd like to show us that they know things that we don't know. They'd be willing to share it with conditions that we change our ways in certain ways. I think that's what they would do. Who would they share it with? I mean, we, we, our governments are corrupt. Our, mm -hmm. our academic world is 
more out to prove that they're right than they are about finding new discoveries. So who would they tell? Just to ordinary people? That's a very good question. Uh, you're right about the academics. Um, I lived in that world for some number of years um, doing mathematical research. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an institution, you know. It, it's, well, you know, for example, in physics, all this business about um, quantum theory and interpretations of quantum theory, the Copenhagen interpretation, other interpretations, um, a lot of physicists, academics, don't really care about the philosophical aspects. Of, you know, the questions about what is reality. Mm -hmm. What's real? Einstein said that um, according to the Copenhagen interpretation, um, when he looks at the moon, if he looks away, it's not there anymore. You know, it's only there when he looks at it. Yeah, that's been a funny, a funny thing, funny remark about it. But it sort of does say that. Yeah, it's that, true. No observer, there's nothing. A lot, of, a lot of a lot of academics don't really care what the truth is. They say, they say, well, I can solve problems. I can I can give you answers to problems using these formulations. And uh, I don't care what they mean, what whether they do or not. They work. And it's a different attitude. And some people care about the philosophical aspects. They want to know what the world really is made of. Mm -hmm. How it works. Uh, yeah, your question is very good. Who would you talk to? I don't, I'm not sure. Hmm. So I have a guest on regularly. His name is Preston Dennett. And he, you know, we, we, we've addressed this question, you know, a couple of times. His belief is that they're going to come He's, actually, he says, like, what they're actually doing, not, not that they're going to, they're doing this. They are coming down here and showing themselves to regular people and doing it in very, very small increments to get us accustomed to this idea that they exist. So, eventually, you know, all, all you know, most, you know, well, the city appeared to maybe 30, 40% of, of normal people see a UFO or have that experience and start believing in the possibility of extraterrestrials. And then after that, they would more reveal themselves to us, the people that are not in charge, not non-government, non-academics, non-scientists. And, you know, they're bringing the message to them to try to spread it that way. Basically, like, like they're planting seeds in ordinary people. And hoping that it grows into, you know, the science community and into the government. Yeah, um, that's a very interesting theory. It makes sense. It would be the most passive way for them to do it. And, you know, and they're probably looking at a long game that we can't see. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Um. What do the, um, in, in your book, what do the aliens think of us? Do they think we're insane? Do they think we're just entertainment? Um, well, I won't get into it too far because I don't want to spoil it for you. Mm -hmm. they, they, um, their, their nickname for us is Fantasy Island. Hmm. I, I'm sorry. They, they, their nickname for Earth is Fantasy Island. Oh, Fantasy Island. Huh. I, see, I see this as a place of self-delusion. Hmm. So I don't want to wreck it, though. Let's get to read it. Interesting. You know, I mean, I would say part of, yeah, we are the del delusional, I guess. We spend more time trying to entertain ourselves than anything else or trying to escape reality. I think mathematics was a good preparation for writing. Uh-huh. Um, it's uh, it's really similar when you write a paper. It's like writing a novel. The same sort of work goes into it. Same sort of analysis. Um, I think it was good preparation. Do you, uh, on your show do you often have people with scientific backgrounds? Um, yeah, I do. I've had quite a few um, physicists, quantum physicists, uh, mathematicians. I've had. Um, biologists, all kinds of um, people, and you know, I've had um, a, a computer guy from MIT come on 
and talk about um, holographic universe theory. So, yeah, I've covered all that with uh, people. And, you know, sometimes it's overwhelming for me because there's so much information that it's hard for me to put it all together into something that, a, a whole that makes sense. Well, you know, one thing I think would be very interesting is for a mathematician to look into the mathematics of evolution. And maybe this has already been done, but you know, the question is, can you mathematically model this process that's supposed to happen in evolution? Maybe you have a random, random gene mutation. And so the, the organism takes on a certain characteristic. And okay, it's, it's favorable to their existence or it's unfavorable. And if it's unfavorable, that, that version dies off. And it's replaced by another gene mutation. Mm-hmm. Well, that all sounds good, but does it hold up under analysis? If you take a look at what's the probability that the gene mutation is going to be favorable rather than destructive? Um, well, it requires, each mutation requires a certain number of things to happen. And what's the probability that that happened? As opposed to a failure adaptation. Right. I think it's, I think it's a principle, mathematically. If you look at the chemical basis of the, 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 uh, the change. So you think it's, you think it's, so does that mean you think it's mathematically probable that evolution is how humans came into existence? Or do you think? Well, I, I would, else? I would just, I would just like to see the analysis. I'd like to see what they come up with. Cause you might, you might very well come to the conclusion. That it's just unbelievable that the number of favorable mutations that would have to happen to change something into something, the probability is almost zero. That could be in place. Could very well be. If you look at the experiments that are done with insects, you know, they mutate insects with radiation, and uh, they get they can grow all kinds of strange appendages. They have arms coming out of their heads and stuff like that. But very few of these are favorable. By the and better claim on existence. So, um, so I've seen some some work to kind of tinkers with the borders of this, but I'd like to see somebody really take it on as a challenge. I would like to know what the probability is of the universe coming into existence and creating life without any type of intelligence is. That that one boggles my mind. Like, Like, is all this? Did, did life originate out of complete chaos, and or 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 how did the order happen? It, it doesn't make sense to me. Like how any of this, like I, it doesn't make sense to me why I'm even here, why why any of this exists, and how it happened. To me, for this to happen randomly seems pretty far fetched. But at the same time, I can't really comprehend. An idea for what has created this order. Well, you know, to me, uh, the one thing I hear that sounds reasonable is something called a multiverse. Mm-hmm. And a multiverse, I think Stephen Hawking has been the last idea. In a multiverse, you have, uh, think of the universe as just uh, initially as just a conglomeration of some kind of particles that came from one over there. And it blows up. And then what happens is a random event. Um, so, what, what can evolve is unrestricted. You can, you can, you can have quarks as the basis of the universe. Well, there be some other particles, not a quark, but not anything that we know today, but it's a, a basis of something. And so they scramble and they combine in different ways, and evolutionary principles take, take, take into account. And you get a form of life. But maybe there's nothing like our form of life. You know what I mean? It's just like you take the cards and you shuffle them randomly. Mm-hmm. Each time you shuffle the cards, you come up with something that's a playable hand or it's not a playable hand. And uh, all you know is that you're one of the hands. Right. You don't know what hand came before, what hand's going to be next. But to you, the entire existence is your hand. But it's not really. It's bigger than that. So I think something like that maybe, you know, if it happens often, if you keep exploding and recombining in different ways, if you do that often enough, every now and then you hit on something that works. But you can't explain what you did or how you did it. It just happened. Wow. Something like that is the most believable thing I can figure out. 
I've never heard. That's a great analogy. <laughs> you know, I, I really like that analogy. I'm gonna have to steal that one. <laughs> I like well, I just, it. Just my head. Huh. That's a good one. I've always thought that, um, you know, like, like I also think about the probability thing. You know, and and my idea is that, you know, from a mathematical point of view, you know, every combination already exists so right. there's all these probabilities out there you know because because at some point there was a one or a zero or, or for zero there had to be a one whatever happened it, it created this ridiculous amount of possibilities mm-hmm. and we're living through one of those possibilities that's right yeah, that's it. And, and even from like our microcosmic view, I think, too, this might be useful because then as humans, you know, I, I, I can focus on what probability I want to experience. And that's how a person might be able to better direct their life. Yeah. Like, one, one, one fundamental thing that always puzzles me is we talk about randomness as if we know what randomness is. I, I don't know what randomness is. Um, uh, we have pseudo randomness. Mm-hmm. What, what randomness means? Uh, uh, it's, it's a human thought of randomness is some sort of strange numbers. It is, you, you don't know where it's coming from and you can't predict where it's going. So the digits of class are If you don't know that, you think the digits of class It is random. The, the digits just bounce around all over the place. In an unpredictable fashion. But there, it is pretty cool if you know the rule lines, you know, that they didn't lose the So, um, that to me is when I think about randomness, what is randomness? To, to make a random number generator, you have to make a very pseudo random generator. It's following some sort of formula. It's just a formula that I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, if the whole universe is supposed to be based on randomness, with the multiverse with each square would be a random presentation to others. Um, I don't know how it would power the particles. So the particles in a certain situation. And it could go left or if you go right. If you say that it has random behavior, you know, goes left, location right, and it's in unpredictable fashion. But there is no formula driving it. So the particle just sits there and says, well, today I'm going to go left. And tomorrow I'm going to go right. And I don't, I don't know why I'm doing this. He believes that the, um, Basis of all everything is that kind of randomness where you believe that there has to be a rule. The particle must be going right or left because of a certain situation. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's randomness is something that being um, so fundamental to a lot of these arguments. Mm-hmm. I've seldom seen anybody stop and say, "What? What is it? Can I make a random number generator that's truly random?" Uh huh. You cannot tell what's coming next. That was the idea. You were saying uh, information, uh, along with the multiverse thing. Uh, oh well, okay, that's the main idea. I, I I question that too. I question whether randomness and chaos is actually possible because of its probabilities. You know, I, I think that probably from the from the view of whatever's Grading the probabilities is not random, but to us it may appear to be random. So therefore, misinterpreting things. Do you think that there's a, a God equation, like a, an equation that you know the the everything equation or whatever they call it? Um, well, there might be, but it would be an equation for one of these hands. So we talk about a, we would out the hand that that might have an equation, but the overall scheme of infinite set of hands. I think it's a little bit down the road. Not for ever now. Do you do you think that there's dark matter or, or not dark matter? Like, or, you know, do you think that dark matter, antimatter, and things like that affect this, or do you think that this is dark matter or antimatter, and we're not actually living in the world of real matter? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, okay, that's a very good question. I don't know. I don't know how I would tell. This is like stuff that people, we just go through our daily lives and never think about, right? 
Right. <laughs> yeah. why, why I have to think about it? Why am I the one stuck with these questions? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I would say from my reading, I think that there is a certain amount, obviously, of, for because I, I think we live in a world as, of duality, which or appears to be duality from our point of view, that there probably is. You know, dark matter, antimatter, stuff like that. That's um, well. They certainly we certainly need it to explain what we see. We need something. Mm-hmm. Dark matter, dark energy, fill, fill the bill. Yeah, definitely. It was interesting is then that matter has gravity, and that's sort of the explanation of gravity, I believe, right now. Oh. Um, so, uh, what do you feel? Go ahead. What do you feel just intuitively about the probability of uh, um, evolution occurring the way we think, think it occurs? Uh, do, do you I, feel that too much had to happen? Yeah, I think, um, one, I don't really like the word evolution, I prefer adaptability. Because uh-huh. adaptability is something that we can observe. We can ex- observe a species, say, um, going into a different climate than what they're used to and then adapting to it. And because mm-hmm. they've adapted to it, the genes change and their offspring are now something slightly different. So there's this adaptability that happens over time. Do I think that explains how humans have appeared on this planet. I don't believe it does because um, we're so different than other species on this planet. And I, I talk about it all the time on, on here. You know, I certainly have like biologists on here. You know, it's like, why are we bipedal? And no other animal on this planet is bipedal. You know, to me, that tells me that we probably have originated on a planet with less gravity, possibly Mars. And then something happened there and we ended up here. Um, so I believe that, you know, adaptability happens because we can see it happen. Um, mm-hmm. I don't believe that is an answer for life in general. And I also don't believe it is an explanation for humans, and I also don't believe in the human timeline. I don't believe that we've only been, you know, civilized humans for I think what you're saying now is like three hundred thousand years. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's been longer, and I think there's been different epochs on this planet where um, life has evolved, has been destroyed, and has re-evolved again. Well, here's a conundrum for you. I believe that the human mind has an almost infinite capability. For music, and you think about that. Um, if I if I play a a tune, uh, a nursery rhyme tune, or Bach or Beethoven or anybody, I'll play a few notes, and you'll know exactly what's coming next. Mm-hmm. You ever think about that? Or the, the words to a song that you've heard just a few times, maybe twenty years ago, and uh, you have no trouble recalling the words. Why did? Uh, we put so much energy into it being musical, so it is. It borrows nothing in terms of ability. You could argue that being musical, you can hear the difference between a duck and a, and a wolf or something like that. I doubt that that buys you much. And it's a lot of ability, you do better than that. So why, why was so much energy put into making the human mind a, a musical instrument? I don't understand that. I, I, I play music. I, I'm a guitar mm-hmm. player. And um, I've never really thought about that question. Ever, I've never considered it. But now that you've asked me that question, you know, I mean, my instinctive answer is that everything is vibration and so is music. So it resonates with us. It, 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 it resonates with the molecules in our body and creates a vibra- vibratory state that is... Um, changes us. So it's probably be, <coughs> excuse me, something that's inherent in our in our makeup. And math is closely related to music. Also, I mean, math and music are closely related as well. Well, I, I can buy that as a general general one. 
when you get into the specifics. I'll give you for example, if I see you the Gettysburg Address, and say four score and seven years ago. Now, can you remember the next lines? No. Maybe you can, maybe mm-hmm. you can't, but it's, it's kind of really tenuous. Now, if I say Ave Maria, can you remember the song? Yes. Yes, easily. No, it's not even a challenge. Mm-hmm. And either you may not have heard Ave Maria for the last 30 years. It's just, why is the brain so adapted to music? Mm. Why would the evolutionary tools work to make that aspect superior? Rather than things that are really going to save you high. Do you have a theory of why? No, I have no idea. I I don't have any idea. Why would adaptation have selected us to be great musicians rather than great survivors? Yeah. When I have better vision, so you can see the enemy off, off in a distance or something like that. Why waste your time on music? It's the same way with stories, too. I think we're, we have an incredible capacity of telling stories. And I think that's why we spend so much time. I mean, you know, one of the biggest things that we create is entertainment like this because mm-hmm. people for some reason, we're just drawn to stories, just like we are with music. And, and, yeah. and, and why? You know, it, 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 a lot of the stories that we enjoy and listen to have nothing to do with survival. Well, I hope my book is um, enjoyed. <laughs> I hope so, too. It's but, very hard to, um, to have something that's offbeat. You know, mm-hmm. Traditional, also successful. Um, better work on that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean. Do you ever think about like where your story actually came from? Do you actually think that you thought of your story, or do you think that the story was always there and you're just the one who was chosen to tell it? It almost seems like the latter. Well, no, I can't really defend that. But. I, I didn't really, um, I didn't really um, fabricate the story in any sense. Um, I didn't have a methodology or anything like that. I just uh, built understanding the basic outline. What I like to do is have characters that are interesting and put them in a situation that's interesting. And just like George Marshall said, just let it rip. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. Um, the characters were sometimes based on real people that I knew, sometimes not. Um, I, that's the only advice I could give anybody to write, write creatively. Long yeah. George Bond shows hmm. Another idea that I've had over the years is that if you wanted to write a lot of books, take an old book like I started with Curtis Faust, mm-hmm. and take it, take any old book, and just say, "How will you translate it today? How will it look?" And we got a book. It's easy. Yeah, yeah. Your great grandfather worked out the details for you. <laughs> Do you believe in archetypes? Um, in what sense? Um, do you believe that 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 there is a, like a collective consciousness that we pull from, like Carl Jung I believed? I never thought about that very much. Hmm. What about you? I do, I, you know, I mean, because of, you know, I think this shows up in the mythologies that we have over the last, I don't know, 10,000 years or so that we, you know, stuff that we can find all seem to have certain common themes. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that's also another thing, you know, just like the music, I think the, the archetypes and the stories is is programmed into us for some reason. I don't know what that reason is. And I also speaking don't know who programmed it into us. Music, I have, in the book, I have six songs that were written by one of the characters that I wrote myself. And I got Sony Acid. Have you played with that? It's a digital software. Mm-hmm. And I just take it around and just wrote some songs just for laughs. Just for laughs. Hmm. And I have links to sound sound card in the book. 
they, they, they factor into the story. Interesting. So you play guitar? I do. I've been playing since I was 12 or something like that, maybe a little bit younger. But yeah, I've been into this stuff forever. I mean, I've played guitar. I started reading tarot cards when I was young. So, so all of this has been a, a fascination of mine since childhood. Yeah. What style of music do you play? I play all types of music. Um, but, however, when I was younger, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s, so I was more drawn to heavy metal and punk rock then. But now I'm older, so anything blues-based I'll play. In a, in a weird way, it's all the same type of music. <laughs> music, you know, it follows the same rules. What kind of music do you enjoy? Well, pretty much everything. I, 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 uh, oh, going back to Biff Rose. And just everything. It's, there's nothing I don't enjoy, really. Yeah, me too. We all even listen to classical, jazz, all that. I believe music really touches the human soul in a way that nothing else can. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does and, something uh, it, it, it also can capture the spirit of the time, I think, better than anything else can. Huh. You know, when you go back to the music of the 60s, you know, when Vietnam War was going on, the sound of the time, the music captures it very nicely. Yeah, I love music from the 60s. Hendrix, Doors, Joplin, all that stuff. Uh -huh. It's fantastic. I don't know what it's it says. A, I don't know what it says, though, about the music of this time, though. It's all sort of artificial. Oh. I think. I don't think I've kept up with it. Yeah. I don't relate to it well. But I guess, like, my parents didn't relate to my music, though. So that's probably normal. Yeah. Hmm. Um. So, what are some of your other fav favorite books? Oh, geez. Um. I, I like the Satyricon. Petronius Satyricon. That was really good. I like that. Um. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Uh, it's too many. That's a, that's a tough question. Just right off the top of my head. Do you read any like nonfiction it. stuff? Oh yeah, I'm reading right now about uh, general relativity. About uh, by a guy named Brindler, Brindler R I N D L E R. He's a te Texas mathematician, physicist. He's a wonderful expositor. Hmm. I read his book on special relativity. And I also like to crack a channel, which is much harder subject. Special relativity, I, mean, I think it's good to go back and read the original work sometimes. Because so much, sometimes the original is so much better than all the consequent explanations. Sometimes. Uh, if you go back and read, read Einstein's 1905 paper on special yeah. relativity, the whole story surrounding that is fascinating. Um, to, to make a long story short, what motivated him was not the Michelson Morley experiment. In fact, he said, he said he didn't even know about that at the time. It was the fact that the, uh, the uh, equations of electromagnetics um, were invariant under Lorentz transformations. And that's, that's what, that's what said him on special relativity. Um, and he, he, he credits nobody except one friend of his, a man, uh, Abesso, B-E-S-S-O. Uh, the only guy who influenced him, no other papers. He was uh, a clerk in a patent office at the time. And uh, it took like eight years before he got any recognition out of that, or even got a job. He was teaching, he was a high school um, tutor to make a living, to keep bread on the table. After writing special relativity, <laughs> the guy can't get a job. He can't believe that. <laughs> and, uh, it took years before it sunk in. And when you look at what he did, how, how did he do it? How did it work? He, he was willing to take a risk and say something that might come out stupid. Mm -hmm. He take a risk that the speed of light is constant for all observers in, 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 a, in a certain frame of reference. And, uh, 
that is such a crazy thing to say. That you can talks in your room, there's a lot of change on time measurements. Yeah. And what a crazy thing to think about. You have the idea of mind as a very confessional. Because if you're wrong, he occurs down a drink. <laughs> you see him as a fool. And he took that risk. And uh, you, you get a better appreciation of understanding his mindset, what he was doing, by reading his actual words hmm. translated from German. And, um, so I go back to the original source. I go back to Gauss. I have a book on Gauss from him. His original manuscript of calculating, there was a planet, a minor planet, Ceres, uh, I think it was called. And Ceres would disappear in, into the stars, you get yeah, hidden from view, and then it would reappear. And they wanted to know when it would reappear next. And Gauss said about doing all these calculations and predicting when Ceres would reappear, and he was right on the nose. Yeah. So when you read Gauss, you find that he's not, not at all what you expect. You expect Gauss is so far ahead of the rest of us that he can't even break it down simple enough to explain to us what he's doing. But the opposite is true. If you read Gauss, he's very clear and straightforward. Um, he gives all the details, leaves nothing to the imagination. Couldn't be easier to follow. Now, you may not be able to follow him because you may not have the tools. Uh -huh. But um, just to see how he thinks, how he goes about things. Hmm. Um, I, I like to go back to the original works. That's cool. I actually have some uh, original stuff from Einstein from Princeton University because my mom used to split atoms there. Oh. Yeah. It's pretty amazing stuff. Um, what do you think about fractals? Well, um, I've never played with them much. I know what they are. I don't know much. I haven't really taken thought into that. I'm still trying to find somebody who can explain them to me. <laughs> well, it's like repeating, it's repeating patterns, right? Yeah. Because so we have a pattern within a pattern within a pattern. If you take a microscope and you look for finer and finer detail, you see the same pattern over and over again. Yeah. And they're supposed to be building blocks of something, but I've been looking into a bunch. But I wonder, like, I think fractals are probably something that are, is important because um, I don't and I think that like the weird thing about fractals that I'll say is that, you know, the belief in sacred geometry has been around since uh -huh. ancient times, which is essentially right. the same thing as fractals. Right. Like how would how would ancient civilizations like, you know, three four thousand years ago, know about something that science knows now? Like how did well, they find it? Yeah, well, I was interesting. Did you mention that? I read once about um, something that could have been discovered much earlier, but wasn't discovered much earlier. And it was, it's an amazing experiment. You take oil and put it on the surface of a, of a glass of water, and the oil will float to the top and make a, a cover. Mm -hmm. Now, if you put less oil and less oil and less oil, at some point, it can no longer hold together as a, as a film, and it breaks up. At that point, you're essentially at one atom's thickness. So, um, a person could have conjecture that atoms exist based on that simple experiment. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Another weird thing, too, with along those same lines that I find strange is cymatics. You know, when you when they pour like sand onto a metal plate and then play, you know, run a frequency through it, and it creates these geometric geometric patterns. Oh, I think. I never saw that. Yeah. That, that's like another thing, too. Like, that, you know, brings it back to, like, full circle to why music is so important to us. You know? Yeah. Because I, I really think it, it, it changes us on a cellular level somehow. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm by that. So, so what are some of the most what is the most interesting thing, um, or most um, recent, or most important discovery that you think has happened in math? Oh, math, jeez. The whole thing about math is you know, it's important to you. Mm -hmm. 
he had the, he had the theory established and find some application now. Um, I haven't really kept my time that particular question, but one of the discoveries in Japan about uh, fusion, about being able to actually get more energy out of a fusion reaction than you put in. Yeah, they've they broken that. that. Yeah, so that's quite. A, it's, it's everything that they say in the news. It's that's big news. That means that they're looking forward to a future where energy is cheap and abundant and non-polluting. And it's a different world. A different world. I think they already yeah. have zero point energy and they just don't mm -hmm. want to. I think a lot of what's going on as far as energy goes is simply greed. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, because only people are making money off of it. Why would they want free energy? The biggest fear that I had <clears throat> with that was uh, that the way science is going is that um, it seems to me that as time goes on, it gets harder and harder for the guy on the bottom to make it yeah. in this world. My, my, dad, my dad was an auto body repairman for a while, and he worked hard. And uh, nowadays, if a car comes in with a crumpled fender, they take the fender off and they put it on another one and they paint it. They just, it's not worth it. Pay for all that work to pound the fender and putty it and sand it and paint it. It's not worth it. Just get rid of the job and replace the fender and something from factory. Mm -hmm. Too many things from that way that job after job gets replaced. At some point, you can, you can manage that to a certain extent by shortening the work week. So you don't say people work 30 hours better than 40 hours. Then, of course, you need more people and that maybe everybody has a job. But the way things are going, driverless cars, you no longer need bus drivers, you no longer need taxis. The whole industry goes under at once. And this is happening over and over and over again. I don't see any way that you're not going to go into the future where there's a paucity of jobs for the guy on the bottom. Mm. And the guy on the top is very wealthy. And he's managing these projects and, and, and a lot of products. And no problem for him. So the guy on the bottom is nothing. So society has to make a radical change there. You have to care about the guy on the bottom, which we don't care right now. I mean, there was a broadcast just recently with uh, John Oliver that I thought was fascinating about solitary confinement. And solitary confinement, he was describing how horrible it is. We can't imagine being deprived of all contact with human beings, stuck in a room, just yourself for maybe a year, maybe longer than a year. And it's horrible. And um, I've never been very much sympathy expressed for any movement to change that. It's absolutely unnecessary. It doesn't do any good for anybody. It's just a savage practice, brutal practice. So the, the, what I'm saying is that we haven't shown much sympathy for the guy at the bottom. And uh, I, something has to change. We have to make it our goal to have everybody live a decent life, regardless of what deficiencies they have. To truly respect life, and that we, we don't, we're not there. Right. I think the future is, the future is coming in to have the world we have the haves and the have nots. The have nots really got nothing, and the haves have a lot. And that can't, that can't go on that way. People, when they, uh, people when they're cast to the wolves like that, they, they react violently. That's why so I that's think that, that um, smaller, more communal type of living is would be better, you know. The, you know, sort of go. It's almost like going back to a bit of like a tribal existence where you have smaller communities that are self-sustaining on their own. Right. That way, that creates more opportunity for people, and it's more sharing and less fighting. Going back to the fifties. Yeah. Yeah, I I think um, that would be more of a, a better way to go, or it's probably like, as far as I know, for myself, it's, it's the only solution that I've been able to come up with. But the the motivation for taking care of everybody it just isn't there. Um, we haven't come up with a, a good sell on that point. Mm, yeah, it's a tough one because guys like Bezos and. Um, Musk, they would not be happy with that. 
<laughs> and everybody just sort of fractured off and started their own little communities and became self-sustaining. But I think that would be a great way to live. Well, you have to consciously steer it that way. It's not going to happen by itself. No, no. But I think the idea is out there. A lot of people that I interview um, talk about that type of idea. And it seems rational. It seems sane. It's, you know, if we do what we do now, you know, extraterrestrials are definitely going to have to intervene at some point. Well, you know, you know, one, one, one seller, I think, uh, I thought of was that people should be aware of how close they are to the being of the bottom or someone they love is in the shepherd of the being of the bottom. And, uh, I don't know if you have any kids, but you know, kids are in the next bag, you know, you have strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And every kid needs some special attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, it's uh, academically, some of them, it's physically, but they need some special, they need some help, and that's, your kid could slip into that tile in the bottom very easily. Think about that. Do you want a culture that, that's going to help them, or one that's just going to ignore it? What is your opinion on the academic system? Do you think two this is a double two questions here? Um, one, do do you think that um, whether teaching kids is more or less just grooming them to fit into society and follow its rules? And also, do you find the collegiate environment more of a caste system? Because it's so expensive, it's so established that only certain people are admitted. Well, the university system is uh, they're focused on their well-being. Mm-hmm. They want to publish papers, be on the top of the heap. That's understandable. I don't, I don't begrudge in that. But um, what I see happening now is very encouraging. There's a thing called uh, what's it called now? Um, a number of the big companies are behind it. Um, you, you get a certification from Google, for example, yeah. by taking these courses, and we certify you to be uh, qualified to, to be part of the uh, technology world, um, whether it's writing code or testing code or whatever, but to become competent in a certain area. And it's without going to college. You don't need any college certificate. You don't need any work history. You don't need anything. You just go and sign up for like 50 bucks a month or something. And take these courses. Now that I think is very encouraging because if you're one of these guys near the bottom, you don't have the kind of money that you need to go to college, which is certainly my situation. Um, there's a route for you to have a decent job and take part in the, the economy. And all you need to do is have the time and a computer to take these courses. So I think that's very encouraging. And it's, um, my, my brother, my oldest brother took a course from Dubai. Technical Institute on uh, electronics, and that he built a career on that based on a, a device. Um, that's I think finding pathways that take you to being qualified for a job rather than being an expert, like a PhD in math. And so I know a lot about math. They don't know how to apply it to the system. But the approach here is different. You learn the application and how to be valued uh, with the team, and uh, learn that without going to college. It's just based on your hard work and your abilities. Yeah. And I think it's a very positive thing. Yeah. I, it, it, yeah, I, I agree. You know, I mean, but, but for some reason, though, you know, at least to survive in the academic world, though, you still have to, it was, they still want those degrees from those prestigious colleges. Yeah. Well, that'll be, that'll be true. Um, that's true. You're always going to have an advantage if you have a better degree. That's right. Yeah. If nothing else, you're, you're, you're connected with the right people. Uh, uh, it's not a total solution. I, I kind of think, this is another one of the things I, I think about too, is um, get rid of them. Get rid of these colleges and create a system where people, everybody's offered an apprenticeship in that's it. You, you, you work and you learn your trade 
no matter what it is. Like, like you know, I mean, if we do it with like things like plumbing and auto care, why not do the same thing with math or physics? Mm-hmm. It, it, it just makes sense to me. That, that just do it as an apprenticeship. You, you're, you're working and you're going to school, and as you're working, that's you know your contribute contribution to the the educational process. Yes, I agree. I think that's that's sort of what I was trying to say before too. Um, yeah, in the public schools, I think that <clears throat> when I taught, one of the things that surprised me was uh, in calculus, for teaching calculus, students would come from high school and they did various preparations. Some of them took advanced courses in high school and already understood calculus to a certain extent. When I would lecture, some of these people were like sleeping in class, they weren't paying attention. It's because they had already seen it in high school. Mm-hmm. Now the problem is they didn't they didn't really understand it. They saw it and they knew how to use it to apply to a problem, but they didn't really understand what they were doing. And because they thought they did, they, they didn't listen. And they were actually at a disadvantage. So they came there and never saw it before. They were able to follow very attentively because they were having a hard time understanding. But they ended up understanding all better in the end. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes the, what we teach in public schools is, is not the right thing. Um, like, for example, I think that every student when you graduate from high school should understand um, compound interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and compound interest yes. is not obvious. <laughs> you know, when you take a you know, horseshoe, and, you know, if somebody out there had a horse and he had eight nails in each shoe, 32 nails total, and um, he paid the, 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 the cobbler, or what do you call it, the farrier, he paid him uh, a penny for the first nail, Two cents for the second, four cents for the third, and so forth. Would you rather get that, take that deal, or would you rather take a million dollars? Right. Most anybody's gonna say I took a million dollars, but that's because they don't understand the compound interest. And if you don't understand compound interest, you're not gonna do well in the stock market, or even bonds or saving accounts. It's fundamental. We have to understand that. I don't think it's taught. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's important, at least with our current monetary system, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I remember being told when I was in eighth grade that the important thing was to be very fast with math. A story about one of the one of her students who went to work for one of the companies in Allentown where I grew up, and he was given a Christmas bonus because he was so fast in his manual calculations, he could add a column of numbers quicker than anybody. And, you know, it's not really important. Uh, computers add quickly. Humans don't have to. Interesting. Allentown, Pennsylvania? Yeah. Hmm. I hate, hate to say it, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely town. Uh, well, it's a, it's a kind of a, a trip back in time. You, know, you feel like you're in medieval. Yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> And the street that I grew up on, you know, it, it, life has changed entirely. When I grew up in, in the 50s and 60s, you know, the streets were a place where, you know, when, in the evening, it got so hot in the summertime that the kids just had to get out into the cool evening air. There were no air conditioners. Mm-hmm. And so around a certain time of night, all the kids were out, out in the street, and you had to play with your neighbors, and you had to get to know them. And there was, there was this period of transformation where you learn to get along, you learn to have differences and not make problems with those differences. And um, I think that we don't have anything like that now. Mm. You know, you get to know, people get to know each other and learn how to coexist with other people by being in that situation. It's kind of a good that way. So Allentown wasn't a bad place. It was in a very old-fashioned like that, a lot of Polish and different ethnicities mixing together. Um, it's a kind of a charming place that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably why we don't get along anymore. Well, it takes some practice. It really does. You will sooner or later have a conflict as a kid with somebody else, and you have to learn to work through it. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, so I want to thank you for coming on and talking with me today. And before, and before we wrap it up, though, where's the best place for people to find you, find your book? 
Well, I go to Amazon. <clears throat> I think that's the best place. All right. Because there, I look for Planet Savers, Brandon Hunter. I'll put a link to it in the notes to my episodes so my listeners can just, if they're listening, they can just click on the link and I'll take them right to the book and they'll be able to buy it. That's great. I appreciate that. Awesome. Now, thanks for being on and it's been a pleasure having you and hang on for one moment while I play the outro. Okay. Thank you.